Well, once again, glad you're here with us today. We are uh, starting off a new teaching series today, and I have a little bit of a confession to make to you. Uh, one, this is a series I heard about three years ago from Andy Stanley. Imagine that. There's going to be some guys with some Bibles, and you will want one. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Romans today. Uh, I heard this series a couple years ago, and the, the content of it I thought was so, uh, really, even as a guy who's a pastor who you kind of would hope would know a lot of different stuff, I felt like, man, this is something we don't talk about enough. It's not something we teach enough. And so I thought, we've got to bring this one out. And so I was, I've been sitting on it and praying about it, trying to figure out where to throw this into our rhythm. And I thought, this is the time. And so I've been waiting for this series for quite a while. And I'll also, in full disclosure, the stuff we're going to talk about today is not necessarily the easiest thing for you to comprehend because, to be quite honest with you, as we read, sometimes, anybody in here ever read the Bible and at the end of it thought, what was he saying there? Anybody have that moment? I've had that moment as a pastor. You dive into the Word and you start thinking, oh man, what? I'm not entirely sure. Or sometimes I read, and as I'm reading and I realize I was thinking about something else, I'm like, what did I just read? You know, you read it, but you didn't listen to it. And there's a bit of, of that that can kind of creep in here on this teaching. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, where we're going to be today is the book of Romans. And Romans is considered to be one of the more tricky uh, books of the Bible when it comes to trying to how to understand it and how to kind of parse it out and be able to explain it. Uh, so much so that when I was in college, they actually had, you know, all the books of the different Bibles. Romans actually had a whole class, like a full semester, just going over the book of Romans. And so if you find yourself today thinking, man, this is, this is tricky or this is deep or man, I think he's losing me, you're not alone. And hopefully if you can kind of stick with me, you can get it. And I'm going to do my best to make this as super simple as possible. Now, uh, a couple months ago, actually it was about a month and a half ago, my wife and I are sitting in our bedroom watching TV, and we're watching a TV show I think called Scandal. I'm not entirely sure what show it was, but if there's any Scandal fans in here, you can kind of put in the, what time of night this was. It was later, and um, we're sitting there, and I hear in the laundry room, it shares a wall with our bedroom, there's this beeping sound. It's like beep, 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 and it's not like the normal, like I'm done doing what I'm supposed to do. It was a something's wrong beep. And I have heard this beep before. Uh, a last fall, we had this kind of sound happen, and there was a clog in our washer. And so we ended up having to call a guy to come out, and he opens up the washing machine. Now, I like to consider myself handy. Like, I've, you know, I've finished our basement, and I've done all sorts of different things. I like to think I'm somewhat handy, but when it comes to a washing machine, I just don't always know what I'm doing or what the next step is. And, and so I did what men, most men would do uh, when there's a problem. I took off parts of it, and I looked at it, and then I called someone, because I had no clue what to do with this thing. Now, other things, I would be like, oh, yeah, I know exactly how to fix this thing, but I mean, this thing was all messed up. It was bad news. And so I call a guy out. He comes over, and he's like, hey, yeah, and he's really nice and professional, and he didn't emasculate me too much. And he was just like, you know, here's what your problem is. Here's, you know, this actually happens with this type of washing machine a lot. It's one of our most common calls. Someone will call us and say, it's given us this code, and it had letters and numbers in it. And, you know, he says, this code usually means this, and he shows me exactly where to go. And he shows me on the bottom of it, there's like this little knob thing you could slowly untwist, and inside there was what we found to be one of my kid's socks. 
and there were a few other items that had gotten sucked in through the washing drain and was clogging up the pump to blow the water out or to pull the water out. And I would have never known what to do about this situation had I not called and had somebody come out and help me fix this thing. And so Jen and I are sitting there watching Scandal, and this is, we've already fixed this before. And I hear that sound, the dreaded sound, you know, like, oh no, there's something wrong with the washing machine again. And we go in there, and this time it's worse. Our washing machine's on a second story, and there's water all over the floor, which immediately you start thinking, thank you, Lord, you know, we're very thankful you know, for this experience of getting to mop up all the floor, you know, and all this stuff. And our thing had overflowed and the stuff wasn't lined up the way it was supposed to be and there was water all over the place. And luckily, we didn't have any drywall damage. But I guess what? This time, I knew what to do. So I, after cleaning up Lake Gaylor in our upstairs, I open up the front of this thing and I take off the little knob thing and as soon as I open it up, there's my wife's debit card. And there's a piece of a sleeve that had gotten ripped off. We're not entirely sure what happened. I mean, maybe there's a gremlin in there when we were washing the clothes. We're not sure. Uh, and all sorts of stuff had gotten sucked in there. And it was all sitting there, and it was not allowing this thing to pump out any water. And thus, when there's no place for the water to go, it was just kind of finding any exit it could find, and it was all over my floor. And something that I learned with my washing machine, is it's difficult to solve a problem when you don't know what the problem is to begin with. Like, it's difficult when you look at your washing machine and you're looking at this thing, and I don't know, maybe you're a Whirlpool repairman. Uh, I probably shouldn't use their names or I think I'm slandering them or something, but uh, we're not big enough of an audience that they'd care, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, unless you're a Whirlpool repairman, if you don't know what's going on, it's difficult to solve the problem. You know, you can look at all the different things and you can start like trying to guess as to what the problem is, but if you don't really know what the problem is, it's hard to figure out how to solve it. The, uh, you know, some of us have been trying to solve a problem in our lives for a long period of time. And some of you have been trying to solve you, if you will, you got that one thing, and it just keeps showing up in your life, and it keeps kind of kicking your tail, and you've been working on it for a long time, and you've been wrestling with it, and no matter how much you try, it still kind of has you by the throat. I mean, you've been working on you, and you just can't seem to break free. Others have tried to work on you as well. If you're married, you know what this is like. You know, you have other people who are trying to step into you, and they, I mean, the people who are closest to us, they can see it too. They know what that issue is, and so they're trying to be helpful and trying to solve you as well and giving you all sorts of constructive criticism. I mean, some of us have paid really good money to figure out how to solve us. You know, we've gone to counselors or gone to, to, to centers, or you've, you've tried to spend a lot of time trying to work on it. You've paid professionals to help you try to get in the gym and make you thought, if I pay the professional, maybe I will run on the treadmill, and you still can't seem to fix it. Some of us have lost friends You've lost relationships, or maybe you've lost even a spouse. Maybe you've even lost a good job because you just couldn't quite get you solved. And the problem may be that you don't know what the problem 
Maybe. Like you have been trying to work on something and kind of like if I were to mess with my washing machine without having some sort of guidance from this expert coming in, I would have been doing all sorts of silliness trying to figure out how to solve this thing. would have been probably trying to remove parts that didn't need to be removed and all sorts of stuff. And some of us have been doing just that. you got that one thing in your life, you've been wrestling with it, you've been trying to figure out how to fix you and really... To be quite honest, maybe you've been messing with all these things and they're not quite the problem. And today I'm going to tell you what one New Testament writer has to say your problem might be. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at just this idea of this problem and trying to talk about what it might look like for us to find a solution. And if you're not a Bible person, I understand like sometimes you come in here and you might be a little bit of skeptical or, you know, I'm not entirely sure how much of this Bible stuff I really want to uh, kind of dive into today. And so what I kind of want to tell you is this guy named Paul is the guy that we're going to be hearing from. And Paul is a guy just like you and me. And though you may not agree with his explanation for the problem and how to fix it, I do think that you'll be able to, I agree with his diagnosis. Like, even if you don't agree with the Bible, I bet you will read this next passage with me, and you'll think, you know what, I can, I can agree. Maybe you'll go home, and you'll say, you know, I have finally found a scripture in the Bible I can agree with. Maybe that's you today. And so I want to start today in Romans chapter 7, and we're going to be bouncing around in Romans a little bit today, but in Romans chapter 7, we have Paul talking about his situation. And before I go any further, Paul was a guy who had studied under some of the religious elite. He had spent a lot of time learning about the scriptures. This guy was a church person, if you will. Like He would be considered to be an expert. A lot of the New Testament scriptures that we hold up as a part of the Bible were written by him. And a lot of that, the reason why we hold his words to be so true is because he was very well educated. He knew the scriptures really well, and he kind of knew... Uh, he knew the religious system pretty well as well. And so Paul says this, and maybe you'll hear this and you'll think, I, I kind of agree with this. This is kind of how I am. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Are you tracking with him? Lots of do's in there, right? And he wants to do one thing and he doesn't seem to do it. And one of the things that's kind of interesting here is he says, I agree that the law is good. And what he's saying there is, is like most of us would say that the law was established, even if you were like to think about, you know, our laws and our lands. I mean, this isn't necessarily just religious law. This is just law in general. Law is given to us to try to help us and steer us to staying into what most people would say is the, an agreeable good. Now, some of us would say, well, I think it's okay to drive faster than 55. But for the most part, like, laws are kind of established in some way or another to kind of help us. For the most part, we would say it's, it's good for us to follow the law. I mean, we want there to be laws that say that murder is outside of the bounds of what would be good, and we would all look at that in a situation where murder shows up. Well, that's not good. As much as we hate to admit it, school zone speed limits are probably a good thing even though we feel like they prey on us, right? You know, like school zones, hey, it's probably a good idea for to drive slowly. And if you don't think that that's probably a good idea, you either don't have kids or you've never had a kid near the road. 
Because when a kid gets close to the road and it's your kid, suddenly you're thinking, whoa, 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 I wish they would slow down, right? That's how you end up with that little green man with the flag in your neighborhood. You know, some lady had a kid that got close to getting ran over and someone wasn't paying attention. And so she went to Walmart and bought one of those things and said, slow down. This is our neighborhood, right? Most of the time we would say that law, the laws are good. And what Paul's saying here is I can't, I'm like trying to do what I know I should do, but I can't quite seem to pull it off. And so for me, I have to say that the law is good because the law kind of forces me to do what I'm supposed to do, even though I, I wish I could just do it myself. Tracking with me? So verse 18, he says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For, not, for I do not, I cannot read this, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. For some of you, you hear this passage, you're like, oh yeah, I've got that t-shirt. There are tons of those in my closet. That's me to a T. Oh yeah, there's all sorts of things that I wish that I could do. I wish I could stop talking like that, or I wish I could change this thing about me. I wish I could just do this. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. I mean, some of us, we can teach our dogs to be housebroken, but we can't housebreak ourselves. Like, that's a figure of speech. I mean, we, you can't, hopefully you can housebreak yourself. But you know what I'm saying. Like, you can train your dog, but it's so hard to train yourself. I mean, why can't I quit losing my temper? Or why don't I just quit lying? Why don't I quit eating so much? Why don't I just quit being unfaithful? Or why don't I just forgive and go on? Or why don't I quit looking at that stuff? Why don't you quit drinking so much? Why don't we do what we're supposed to do? We would all say, yeah, there's certain things I'm supposed to do and I just can't seem to do it. And if it was just as easy as this, if we could just do what we'd want to do, I mean, it'd be simple. Well, you'd come to church every week and I'd just say, stop it. You'd be like, okay, and you'd go and you'd stop it. And it'd be like, church would be as simple as like, stop, don't, start, see you next week. And I guess we'd probably have to pass the plates in there, you know, just because it's church, right? It's what you do. Um, and so, I mean, why can't we do what we're supposed to do? Now, I bet you have theories as to why it is you can't seem to do what you're supposed to do. And today, I want to share with you what Paul's theory is on why you can't do it. See, Paul begins to explain it. And to be quite honest with you, he's not easy to understand sometimes because this, uh, this text is written, but Paul didn't write it himself. Most scholars believe that he dictated it to somebody and someone wrote down what he was saying. And if you've ever had somebody like talk to you and you're trying to write down what they're saying, you know, they can go on rabbit trails and they're like, well, you know, just kind of follow me, you know. You know, get the idea, and he's, he's dictating this letter out, and he kind of goes on some rabbit trails, and sometimes he goes a little deeper, and sometimes you're like, where does he go? Where is he going? And he kind of loops back around. And so here in Romans, he dives into this stuff, and he, he's going to try to explain to us why it is we are the way we are. Now, if you struggle with any of this stuff, I mean, you can email me or whatever, and we'll try to figure this stuff out together. Uh, and so I'm going to try to do my best to explain this to you. And so to turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Now, this is a little bit, a couple chapters back from where we just got all the doo-doos uh, taken care of there. So Romans chapter 5, he says this. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, You see 
at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, this is a passage that Christians, you may have heard this before, like uh, you'll hear Christians will quote this one a bunch. They may not know where it comes from, but they'll say, well, yeah, well, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. This is like a staple passage, uh, and Paul begins to explain to us what it looks like here. And so he would say, while we were still powerless, to which we would all, especially after reading the last verse, would say, yeah, we do kind of lack some, some power to control ourselves, power to not sin, power to, to, you know, to do perfect, to live perfectly. We aren't powerless. But then there's this word there at the end that Christ died for the ungodly. Now, in our culture, that word rubs people funny pretty quickly. Like, try it. Go to work sometime and say, hey, you know what? You're really ungodly. You can even say it with a smile and see what sort of reaction you get. To call someone ungodly is not something that people are all up for and they don't get super excited about it. But the idea of it, just because it's maybe uncomfortable, is that it's actually kind of true. And I'll try to help you understand this. You see, you might say, well, wait, wait, I'm not ungodly. I do all sorts of good things. To which then Paul would reply, well, then stop doing the bad things that you do. And none of, no one in here, we've said this in the past, but no one in here would say, well, I'm perfect. I don't have anything that I do that's bad. To which most of us would say, oh, yeah, no, yeah I'm not perfect. To which then Paul would say, well, God is perfect. God is perfect, which means you're imperfect. And God is perfect. Or maybe to change the preposition there instead of imperfect, to say unperfect. I know that doesn't sound right, but you're unperfect. God is perfect. So you would be un. Godly. Tracking with me? God dies for the ungodly in verse 7. He says, Very rarely will anyone die for, the right, for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this is... This is a letter written to people in a specific time. These people would have known of the context of Jesus' life. Most people believe that this, this book was written within a time period where there still would have been people who knew Jesus personally. They were still alive, so like you could point people to someone and say, hey, that person, they actually knew Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They were there. Uh, they were witnesses to the resurrection. They saw Jesus. So there's like a little bit of a context to this thing. So when he starts saying, while you were still sinners, while you were still out being imperfect, Christ was literally dying at that exact time for you. And so the question starts asking, well, what makes a person a sinner? Because in our culture, that idea of being a sinner is an uncomfortable one. No one is super excited about saying, oh yeah, no one wants to even write a card to someone and just acknowledge someone as being a sinner, but we would all kind of say that we're all imperfect. And so what is this idea? How did this thing start to happen with sin? Now, here's where things get a little bit tricky. You see, Paul starts to talk about sin in a way that maybe you and I haven't always thought about sin. Sin for Paul wasn't a Thing that you did. It wasn't an action. It wasn't a verb. It wasn't like you were walking and you, you're sinning. 
Sin for Paul was like a noun. It was a thing. Not, not an action you did, but it was something that was like a, a person, place, or thing. I know that about my, my grammar school, even though I didn't learn much about it, right? Like it's, it's a thing. Paul speaks of sin as a noun. He says that it has power. And sin entered into the world much like a virus. And at the beginning of the story, we're not going to go there because we don't have time. I'm already going to be pushing for time. Uh, sin enters into the story with Adam and Eve. And there's this temptation of the snake and the apple and all those different things. And then sin enters into the story much like a virus would enter into a host. And because sin was in the first man, it spread to all men. And this is evidenced by death. Sin results and death, and the very fact that you or I have uh, experienced death in, in this world of like uh, the consequences of sin, broken relationships, there's a death of relationships. There's also going to be a day when you and I experience death in a very literal sense where we will pass away. No one in this room expects to live forever on this earth. We all know that there's like this bit of our mortality where we will die. How uh, you know that you're ungodly and helpless and that you have sin is the fact that you are dying. And because we've all sinned, we will all die. Now, to explain this, Paul talks about uh, first sin entering into the world. And I'm going to try to use a little illustration. and Hopefully you'll be able to see this on my table down here. Imagine this being like Adam. And at one point in time, Adam being the first man, uh, Paul explains that we were all in Adam. And I have these great marshmallows to kind of explain uh, the illustration. And I'll try not to touch them all because maybe we'll still use some later. Who am I kidding? I'm going to eat them all later. <laughs> so if you imagine like there's Adam. Adam had a couple of sons. And there's Cain and Abel. They were in Adam. That's an easy one for me to be able to explain. But at one point, all people were in there. So like there's me, Adam's the, the original guy. He's got the sin, you know, he commits the first sin. And then within him, he's got everybody. So there's like, there's me, sinner, you know. There's like my kids. I got them, they're sinners. I've seen them, you know. My wife, uh, we'll set her right here for just a minute. <laughs> you know, like, you know, there's like, there's all of, you know, there's a few of you here today. You're all in Adam. I mean, Billy Graham, I mean, he's a good guy, but he was a sinner. He was in Adam. I mean, Mother Teresa. I mean, you can just start thinking of them all. I mean, they were all right there in Adam. So you just slowly start to just kind of fill them up. And so like all people are inside Adam at one point metaphorically. And then, look, that's all of mankind right there. What do you think? All these people in here. All people, all men, sinners. Okay, babe. Sinner. <laughs> I did it gently. You guys are my witnesses. You know? Like, now, all people were within Adam, the beginning of the story. And so, if Adam has this virus in him, I mean, it's really, uh, some people would even explain it to try to use language. We, a part of his code was altered when he sinned. When he has this, this plague within him, any child born of man, though we weren't created originally in Genesis 1 with that issue, 
when the fall came, like the source code was altered. And then from then on, every man came from Adam and every man felt that same plague, that same issue. You've felt it. You've seen it. We've experienced it. You've felt pain. You've felt shame, which was like one of the first symptoms of it. When Adam and Eve, their first sin comes onto the thing, they are ashamed and they cover themselves up and they hide. They have this issue and pass it along to each and every one of us. So there is the issue of seeing. Now, all people from their sin, their stained nature, They've sinned and brought judgment on themselves and they're born with this capacity inside of them that though they may want to do good, there'll be moments when they are just, they look sinful and it's inside of us. Now, I, I know like sometimes as I preach and as I talk about this, like I don't like to focus in on the negative stuff because to be quite honest with you, we'll end here in just a minute, but like Jesus creates us the image of God. And so the story doesn't start in Genesis 3 where Adam sins and we're all kind of doomed. The story starts that we were created in the image. But unfortunately, this is a consequence that we have to deal with. And though we wish we were still sinless and eternal, because of the sin of Adam, we find ourselves in this situation. And it shows up. I mean, it doesn't matter. You don't have to train anybody. Like, I have kids there was never a moment when I had to teach my kids to start sinning. I mean, they, it just shows up in them, right? It's usually right around two. You know, two, they start to get their own will, and they have their own desires, and they have their own thing, and they want their own stuff, and they learn the word mine, which is the, the, like the unconsidered cuss word. You know, like it's a four-letter word. We should have known this, right? Like mine kicks in, and there's all sorts of like, this is about me, 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 and sin shows up. We all have it inside of us. We were born, and I hate to use this word, but really we were born, Scripture uses the word condemned. We were born in this situation. Now, when we think of condemned, we automatically start thinking about hell and fire and brimstone. And to be quite honest with you, the prophets talked about the condemnation being way less about just being like, uh, God wants nothing to do with you, and it had way more to do with the value uh, this is not something that uh, was originally a part of the sermon, but I thought it was important to throw in here. One of the early prophets, Jeremiah, takes the leaders of, the, of Jerusalem and takes them to the city, dump land, and he takes a pot, and he breaks the pot there in the Valley of Gehenna, which is a physical place, which is where people would throw their trash out. And he says that you have become like condemned people, and he breaks this pot. A pot broken cannot serve the purpose it was originally created to have. When we think of condemnation, though it's worthless and useless, sometimes we think of God just can't wait to burn you in hell. But it's really, a, and I think that it's more about He created us with a value and it's, His heart's broken because we aren't fulfilling the value that He has. And just like anything that's useless, we throw it away. When the trash pile gets high enough, what do you normally do with it? You burn it. This idea of hell comes from this idea that God created us with purpose and value and it's lost because we sin. We've been condemned. Now, our problem goes deeper than habit 
and behavior. And as long as I try to solve me by addressing my habits and behaviors, I never am going to be able to solve the real problem. See, my habits and undesirable behaviors are merely expressions of the sin that dwells inside of me. And as long as I deal with me from the standpoint of being a good person who only does a few bad things, I'll never deal with the root of the problem. And that is the sin that's inside of me. There's this tension that we live in. And sometimes we want to like explain it. Like, are you a good person who does occasionally bad things? Or are you a bad person who sometimes does some good things? And I think sometimes we want to like wrestle with this tension and you want to try to solve it and say, well, if you're a bad person, bad people can't really ever do anything good because you're just a bad person. Well, then how do you explain the good that happens in this world? There's some good in us. There is. Some pastors like to resolve this tension and say, well, you are just a bad person. You're sinful and you're fallen and a little bit of sin corrupts everything. One of my favorite illustrations a youth pastor used to use, uh, he would, he would uh, make a milkshake, which would be beautiful, right? And you're like, oh, banana milkshake. And he would call, any kid want these, this banana milkshake? And everybody like, oh, yeah, that I want it. And all the kids would be going crazy, you know. And then you would take just a little smidgen of dog poop. They thought it was dog poop. It wasn't really dog poop. And you'd drop a little, I mean, just a little bit of dog poop in this milkshake. Does any kid really want this anymore? And most kids are like, no, no, no. There's always that one crazy kid. I'll drink it. <laughs> you know? You know? But most of us would agree, like, a little bit of dog poop ruins the whole milkshake, right? Like, I'm not eating. I'll eat, you know. I know it might dilute out, but I'm not drinking that, you know? You know, and that's how most people like to explain sin. Like, if you have sin in your life, you have a little bit of it, then you're, you're ruined in its entirety, even though there might be still some good stuff out there. And to be quite honest with you, it'd be really easy for me to say, no, you're just a sinner and you're a bad person and I can't explain the good things that you do, even though you can't stop doing the bad things that you do. And it'd be really easy for me to say, no, God created you to be a good person and you originally were created good and you're a good person that just sometimes does bad things. And to be quite honest with you, I think this is a tension that we'll have to manage for all of eternity. I can't say that you're just a sinful, terrible person because why would God die Send his son to die for something that's useless and worthless with no value. And I can't say that you're a good person because, to be quite honest with you, I know you. Because you're probably a lot like me and you probably still have things in your life that just aren't quite perfect, aren't godly. And I think it's a tension that we have to manage. But there is something inside of us. It's inside of you. Your mama saw it when you were little, and she said, I don't know what got into that child. And I would say that Paul would say, yes, I do. Sin. Sin got into them. It's been a problem we've been dealing with for quite some time. Paul says, sin is more powerful than a behavior. He explains sin as being a power all in itself. It's not what you do. It's just power that's within us. You know that. You know, there are times when you have this urge to do wrong and that power is so, or that urge is so powerful that it seems that it's almost your will. I mean, this is how, like sometimes if we, if we just judge everything off of what we desire, we would be running in all sorts of different directions. I heard this last week. There was this com conference uh, 
I wish I could remember the name of it. I tried to remember it, and I've forgotten it. Uh, there was a conference in Texas that was going on where there was a group of people who genuinely believed that they would be better if they could be bionic. And so literally, I'm, I'm not kidding you, there's this community of people that they are like trying to replace their body parts with like man-made kind of synthetic parts. Anybody heard of this stuff before? Google it. It's out there, I promise you. And they believe that like they would be better and they would uh, be more efficient. They have this desire to totally replace themselves, if you will. And they're working through how to do just that. To which most of us would say, you're crazy. That's not right. But inside them, there's this urge, there's this desire that this would be better if I could go this direction. And there are times when you have urges that other people could look at you and say, that's not healthy. That's not taking you someplace that's going to lead you towards life. I have urges to just, you know, I want to drink so much Pepsi and I would, I mean, I could just get fat and fat and fat and my wife can easily say, man, that's a bad direction. I mean, you're headed a wrong way. But inside you, there's that urge. This is how alcoholism takes place. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Like you start, before long, addiction starts to feel like it's you and how you want to be. All of us have, us, have inside of us this desire. You know, sin can take us some places that we don't necessarily really want to go. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of verses. We're going to jump down to verse 15 because I'm going to run out of time if I'm not careful. I may have already. I did. I got about five minutes left. Okay. So here's where this thing kind of heads. In verse 15, Paul says, the gift is not like the trespass. Now, what he's talking about, he's going to talk in just a minute about a gift that God gives us. Now, if you come to church for any period of time, you know that gift is Jesus coming on and dying on a cross, giving his life for us that we can be made right. He says that the gift is not like the trespass. And the trespass meaning Adam sins. Therefore, everybody who is in Adam has to deal with this issue forever and ever and ever, and it has a power that controls them. Paul says that the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, remember sin is the result of that death, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by that grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? If a mere man could, could pollute the entire gene pool, imagine what God as man could do. He continued on, verse 16, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, what he's meaning, if his one sin, if death can reign to the point where it conquers all of men, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign, and here's the key, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If a single action of a single man could create a generational chaos of sin. Think of what the single action of God as man could do. 
If Adam could mess you up, how much more could Jesus, the Son of God, fix you up? And I wrote this in my notes because I want to make sure I don't mess this up. But if Paul is comparing what Jesus did to what Adam did, we are talking about some kind of fundamental change in you. We are talking about a source code, not a behavior. So Jesus did something so fundamental that it addresses the sin inside you. So when you place your faith in Jesus, you're literally being transformed, changed, and being placed in Christ. When people place their faith, they're being moved. Lots of times when we think about, when we think about, I just, I was dying to, I'm sorry, I just needed to throw it in my mouth. I couldn't control myself. It was there. It's sinful, I know, it's in me. It's good, though. Lots of times when we think about Jesus coming and dying, I hope that by now you understand that the message of Christianity is not just so that someday when you die, you get to go to heaven. You get removed, evacuated to some other space, some other place. Because Paul here says that you get the gift of righteousness will reign, what's it say? In life. It's not someday when you die that you, it'll rain after your death. That you'll rain in life through this one man. You can find life. You can be free in Christ. You can be taken out of Adam and be placed in Christ. Where there's death, pain, suffering, shame. It can be removed from your source code and it can be literally, I keep using that word, it sounds very nerdy, doesn't it? And you get placed in Christ, there's actually an option for a different sort of life. Where there's bondage, death, and slavery, you can find in Christ freedom and life. Consequently, just as one trespass, uh, trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of this one man, the many were made sinners before they ever did anything. If you think of sin as just being something you do, you're missing it. These people haven't done anything yet. They're still... It's still in them. Before they ever did anything, they were sinners. So also, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Here's the other thing that's freeing for you. Before you ever did anything, before you ever sinned, God saw you, died for you, and he provided a way for you to be made right, to be made righteous. Before you ever did anything, sometimes you have this picture in your head that I've done some terrible things and I can never be made right. Before you ever did anything, God provided this way for you, for us. It's not just something you do or did. Christ still 
dies for you. You think I've done some terrible things and God can't forgive me. That's not true. You think other people, man, they've got these issues. Could they ever be made right? Yes, they can too. And it's easy to kind of look at it on paper and say, oh yeah, Jesus loves us all. But when it's really you, can the shame that you carry with you keep you from accepting the gift of freedom that God wants to give you? Before you ever did anything, Now, it's difficult to solve a problem when you don't know what the problem is. And Paul says the problem is deeper than behavior. It's the sin that's residing in you. But if you are a Christian, if you're someone who has been, you know, you've placed your faith in Christ and you, metaphorically, you've kind of put yourself over here, but you still find yourself wrestling with sin and darkness, perhaps it's because you don't realize that you can be free. Now, naturally, when you think, okay, Jesus did something for me, he provided a way for me, then what do we naturally kind of want to do? Well, Christ did this for me, now I'm going to do something for him. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, now I'm going to go and do my best. I'm going to try my hardest. To which we all have tried, and you've probably failed, and you're probably thinking to yourself, I can't do this. I've said this before, this is my dad's problem. This whole series is my dad's issue with faith because he tried really hard and he didn't do it very well and he missed the mark. And so now he doesn't think that he can be here because he still sees a little bit of this in him. And over this series, we're going to talk about how is it that you can truly be free and live life at its best. Perhaps you've been dealing with the things you've been doing, been trying really hard, and you can't quite kick it. And what you're going to realize over the next couple of weeks is that Christ has given us a power, and you've never truly tapped into it. He wants freedom for you, but you've never truly surrendered or understood it. And so you've been trying to fix the problem without even knowing what the real problem is is. And I'm going to venture to guess that even by the end of this series, you're going to be much like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, who wanders through the whole story with the shoes on. The power to go home was always right there, but she wasn't fully aware of it. Christ has given us a power, and for some of us, we aren't even fully aware of its presence. There's something that you may not know about when it comes to your faith. And Paul's audience didn't know about it either. And so he begins the very next section of scriptures and he says, do you not know? Perhaps there's something made available to you and to me that maybe you're just not aware of. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. So I was wrestling with how in the world can we give you something ap- you know, applicable because I was like, what is this? Okay, man, you kind of left me hanging there. Thank you. So I was trying to think, what can I do for you to kind of go, you know, and so I was thinking, what a great application for you is before you, you know, leave here today, maybe you should just try telling somebody that they're really ungodly and see how they respond. <laughs> That's a joke. But it's the reminder of just how much we need the freedom that Christ has for us 
Because we all would quickly say that we are ungodly and we need it. And I believe that Christ has the answer for us. But until you identify what the problem really is, the sin that's inside you, you can't take the next step and the next step in this journey. So let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for really this, this journey that you've put in front of us. And for some of us, Lord, we've been like wrestling with trying to fix all these things we're doing. And really, the issue is something that's inside of us. It's a thing. It's not a, it's something, it's not a, a verb. It's a noun. And so, Lord, as we kind of go into this series and we kind of look at some of these teachings, Lord, I just trust that perhaps you would help some of us to find freedom. And Lord, many of us in this space today, we kind of stand here and we continue to confess, Lord, we need you. We aren't perfect. You're God and we aren't. So we're ungodly. And so Lord, as we kind of continue on this journey, may you guide us, direct us, and may at the end of this uh, may we find ourselves more free and consequently more alive. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.